I've set a revolution in Spain And the North Pole I have charted Still I can't get started with you And on the golf course I'm under par And Metro Goldwyn want me to start I've got a house, such a place that I can't get no place with you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, as always, he is the man who played Clayton Townley in the 1988 film Mississippi Burning. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing very good, David. I'm doing a little better than you. You sound like you're kind of on Snot Island. Yeah, my sinuses are really inflamed, and I'm sure people want to hear about this. So, it, well, uh, but no, it's it's good to know that you're flying uh, slightly impaired. You know, exactly in the right. three-legged race, you're a man with two legs. So if this episode but, of the Tobolowski file sucks. It's, uh, <laughs> it's your it's, fault. Exactly right. Yep. It's always your fault. No, I, I just have, that's just my standard fallback position, as you've noticed, that it's <laughs> David Chen's fault. Exactly, yeah. For yeah. sure, for sure. You know, the, the great thing, of, uh, you mentioned Clayton Townley, I'll just bring up this slight movie reference, is that when I was in, uh, I guess it was in northern Alabama, shooting part of Mississippi Burning, I went into a, a drugstore and uh, to buy just stuff I had forgotten. And uh, people there were not happy to have the movie they're shooting. And they asked me what I was playing. And I said, Clayton Townley, you know, the head of the Ku Klux Klan. And they said, uh, the woman behind the counter said, well, he was my neighbor. And let me tell you, he was a fine gentleman. And I said, yes, ma'am. And that's exactly how I intend to play him. Uh, and, and I only bring this up. I only bring this up. I realize, oh, I didn't mean to bring this up, but I did bring it up, is that part of my story takes place in Alabama. And, and, and I just want to put the disclaimer out because when I did episode three, Land of Enchantment, I got a lot of heat from local artists and people who lived in Santa Fe. And I certainly didn't mean to disparage Santa Fe. It is quite a beautiful place, even though it had some weirdnesses to it. And I certainly don't mean to disparage Alabama because I found the people of Alabama have a great good sense of humor. And it is a beautiful state. I just want to say that going into it to cover my tracks for when I trash it later. You know, kind of, kind of do that a little bit. Well, that sounds like a good plan, Stephen. You know, you mentioned your experience with, with Mississippi Burning. and uh, it, it, <sighs> So much stuff has happened since you shot that film. Uh, oh, yeah. We've elected a, a black president. That was really cool. And uh, I, I just think, you know, the world is not what it used to be. That is better usually than my segue, but you probably have no idea what I'm even going to talk about. Exactly right. So See, because everybody out there, you don't realize this. That was a very seamless transition because the name of this podcast is The World Is Not What It Used To Be. But David has no idea what I'm going to talk about. What I'm going to talk about, David, is this, is that when I was in grade school, the ad that I used to see everywhere was Join the Army and See the World. And the allure of that ad, of course, had nothing to do with the drawing power of the army, but it had everything to do with the romance of the world. And, and I know the world isn't what it used to be. 
I know a lot has happened since the fourth grade to kill the romance. Among the culprits, and in no particular order, are the 24-hour news cycle, terrorism, AIDS, flying coach, and the Hallmark Channel. I don't mean to pick on the Hallmark Channel. It is the last vestige of programming aimed at the romantic, but they have even given up on our current world several years ago and have resigned themselves to produce made-for-TV movies that take place in the Old West or Canada. And while many people look toward a nuclear Iran or melting ice caps to get a heads up on the end of the world, I train my eye on the programming of the Hallmark Channel. And the equation is this. The more modern the time frame and the more cynical the casting choices, the closer we are to the end of the world. So, for example, if you were to see a Hallmark movie entitled The Search for Mrs. Santa, starring Liza Minnelli and Simon Cowell, consider it one of the seven signs of the apocalypse. In spite of everything that's happened in the past few years to our poor old world, I do think the lure of travel is still alive and well in the entertainment industry. And a lot of youngsters I talk to, you know, a lot of people emailing me wanting to be in show business, look at the Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie flying off to Namibia to have their baby as an exciting thing. And I thought getting to Cedar Sinai on time was an adventure. When I shot my opening scene in season two of Heroes, and that was meeting Dr. Sirash at a hotel in Cairo, I had many young fans absolutely swooning over the idea that they flew Sendel and myself to Egypt to shoot at a cafe in front of the pyramids, instead of the reality that we shot in East L.A. at an abandoned hotel in front of a green screen. My focus here is not that we shot in front of a green screen and added Egypt later, which I prefer. And by the way, which I think is pretty cool. But it was in the hearts and minds of these young fans. They still thought that flying to Cairo for a day's work would be something that they would put in the wonderful column of the Chinese dinner menu of their lives. The romance of travel still burned. Now, like it or not, the reality of the film business is you have to travel. And traveling is always a lot more stressful than anyone anticipates. And occasionally, there are unexpected wonders. I remember one of my first jobs out of town. I was cast in a TV movie called The Last Flight Out with an absolutely incredible cast that included James Earl Jones, Richard Crenna, Eric Bogosian, Arliss Howard, the great Hang Noor, Rosalind Chow. And that's just for starters. The movie was about the last flight out of Vietnam near the end of that war, and we were shooting it in Thailand. I was flown to Bangkok first class on Northwest Orient, which is about as luxurious as you can make sitting in one place for 22 hours luxurious. Besides me was the head cartoonist for the Garfield comic strip in Asia. Behind me was a beautiful Asian woman curled up in her seat like a cat reading a movie script. And to hell with the mixed nuts. We were served martinis and three kinds of appetizers before we even took off. They gave us massages mid-flight. The only thing that could have made this flight more exotic was Humphrey Bogart. We arrived in Bangkok where there were hundreds of screaming fans with autograph books. And no, no, not, not for any of us American cast on the plane, but for the Asian woman curled up in the seat behind me. Apparently, she was the biggest star in Vietnam. Her name was, well, 
she was the amazing Q Chen. In America, you've seen her heartbreaking work in the Joy Luck Club. She was the woman who had to give up her two infant children. And if you haven't seen that movie, rent it, keep a box of Kleenex nearby, I'm warning you. But anyway, Q Chen was like Elvis over there, and we needed police protection to get off of the plane. She told me that she lived in Vietnam, of course, but now she has a place in Studio City, as it turns out, about four blocks from my house. I found this rather amazing to have one of the great actresses of the world shopping at the grocery store with me and me being completely unaware of it. It was one of the unexpected treasures we hoped to find in travel. And I guess in a roundabout way, I did. We were driven to our hotel in the heart of Bangkok. And you want luxury? This was luxury. Our hotel had a gigantic live elephant covered with Christmas lights in front of it. We walked past the elephant and we were greeted by a gentleman from the hotel who bowed to us and led us to a couch in the lobby. He told us to have a seat and a drink on the house, that we had been through enough stress for one day. He would check us in and handle our luggage while we relaxed. Nice. I had a gin and tonic and took in the wild orchids and waterfall in the lobby. It was stunning. The man returned and said, Stephen, follow me. He took me up the elevator and down a hallway. He was very quiet, not chatty. He just mentioned that he could provide me with anything I needed or anything I forgot to pack. I wanted to marry this man. We walked down an exquisite mahogany hardwood to my room, and I was instructed to remove my shoes and leave them outside the door. He joked that no one would steal them. He was right. He showed me to a chair in my suite, And as he left, a beautiful woman in full Thai ornamental gown with headdress came into the room. She brought me a plate of fresh Thai fruit. She washed my hands in rose water. She pulled back the covers of the bed and strewn the sheets and pillows with gardenia blossoms. The room exploded in a scent of perfume, and for a final touch, she pulled out a TV changer. And she asked me which I preferred, CNN or ESPN. Oh, gosh, I love the easy choices. She turned on the game and instructed me to eat some fruit, drink some water, which she placed beside my bed, and go to sleep. I would feel better in the morning. I wanted to marry her, too. We spent three days in Bangkok, where Eric Bogosi and I walked down to the infamous sex district, Pat Pong, and we went into a bar, which, (laughs) that is another story, somewhat embarrassing, innocent story. I will save that for another day, not to worry. We left for our shooting location, which was a city called Rayong, which is about three hours away in the jungle. When we arrived at our new digs, we were put up in a place called the Rayong Resort. It was an entirely different experience from Bangkok. Instead of the mahogany, the rooms had concrete floors with a drain in the middle because to clean them, they just hosed them out. We were told not to drink the water and take short showers because the water there had diphtheria in it and too much exposure could be fatal. We were told to be careful going down to the beach because that's where the medical waste washed ashore. And since AIDS was rampant, a prick from a buried syringe could prove disastrous. We were told to only eat food that was boiled Uh, not to go outside early in the morning or at dusk because of the malaria mosquitoes, and not to drink tea with shopkeepers. 
When I looked out at the amazing lush jungle surrounding our hotel with the wild orchids growing out of the trees, I just had to take a stroll and get a better look at this amazing part of the world. The woman at the desk stopped me and asked me where I was going, and I said I was just going out to look at the orchids. And she smiled and responded, well, mind the cobras. My experience in Thailand had danger, drama, and an entire cornucopia of things I'd never seen or imagined before. And somehow the chemistry of all of these elements, both good and bad, created what I would call romance. Or in other words, the exotic possibilities of life on Earth. Yet these three elements alone do not necessarily create a world of wonder. Stunning and stupid are sometimes next-door neighbors. For example, you could take the same three things, drama, danger, novelty. Shake them up, and they come out a different way, and you end up with my experience in Mobile, Alabama. I flew coach to Mobile to shoot the film Love, Liza. We arrived at the airport and were taken to the Lamplighter Inn along the juncture of the Interstate 10 and 65. There were no elephants out in front, but I did notice two things about the Lamplighter that were just as unique. One was that it was the only motel or hotel I have ever seen in my life that advertised that they had heated hallways. The second was that the restaurant at the Lamplighter was closed. Let me be more specific. Not closed, closed down. Locked, bolted, chained, shut, tables, chairs stacked to the ceiling. I mentioned at the desk that we were going to be here for about three days and I would need a place to eat. The desk clerk told me that there was a coffee maker in the room. I explained that I like a good cup of coffee as much as the next guy, but I would also need solid food as well. She told me that across the freeway was Schlotsky's Delicatessen. I was in shock. I said, you have a Delicatessen in Alabama? And she said, well, we got Schlotsky's. I told her I didn't have a car. She told me I didn't need no car. It was right across the interstate. And she pointed out the front window, and there was the Schlotsky sign right across the six lanes of 75-mile-an-hour interstate traffic. I went up to my room. It was nasty, but gigantic. I have no idea why or what this room was before it was converted into a hotel bedroom, but I could have taught a yoga class in there. On one end, there was a bed and a dresser with a small little TV sitting on the dresser. And then there was an expanse of about 40 feet of industrial carpeting until you reached the bathroom and the closet area. And there was a dressing table with a mirror outside the bathroom. And on the dressing table was the aforementioned coffee maker with styrofoam cups and packages of sweet and low sugar and stirs. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing remarkable about this room was the large, dark stain on the rug outside of the bathroom like someone had been stabbed to death. I got my Love, Liza script out, studied it that afternoon in preparation for the next day's work. Around evening time, I was getting a little peckish and was wondering if I dare try to make it to Schlotsky's Delicatessen. With script in hand... I walked to the edge of the hotel property and looked down across the interstate. You know when you're standing near a freeway? Those cars seem to be going a lot faster than you ever imagined. But the traffic was light, so I decided to go for it. I headed down <laughs> the grassy embankment to the interstate's edge, and I looked to the south, and the car seemed to be about a quarter mile away. 
I hitched up my pants and I ran like a mofo. I got across three lanes before any cars were even close, and I climbed over the median fence that was dividing northbound from southbound. I took a deep breath, and I looked north, and it seemed like there was sufficient margin of safety, and I dashed across the remaining three lanes to the grassy bank on the other side. I trudged up the embankment to the deli parking lot. Deli food is never a great choice after vigorous exercise. It sat a little heavy on the stomach, and I was finishing my turkey and cheese with Russian dressing with a bag of Mrs. Vickers' potato chips when it dawned on me that now I would have to run back across the freeway on a full stomach and at night. You know, it wasn't as bad as I thought. The advantage with running across an interstate at night is the headlights. You have a much greater sense of depth perception and speed of approaching vehicles. I huffed and wheezed my way between a variety of rapidly moving pickup trucks, kind of like a high-stakes game of Frogger. <laughs> I had an uneasy sleep that night, caught somewhere between being nervous over a start of filming and burping up Mrs. Vickers' potato chips. I woke at dawn and remembered my coffee pot. And let me tell everybody out there, out of all of the luxuries and all of the years I've spent on the road, I've learned that the most useful perk is not the free massage or the free tickets to the basketball game or even the first-class seats on the plane, but it is the coffee pot in your room. You are in control of your caffeine. I brewed a small carafe of coffee, poured myself a cup. I took a sip, unaware that the little machine made coffee hotter than the surface of the sun. In reaction to the potential third-degree burns, I not only spit the coffee out, but I dropped the whole styrofoam cup onto the floor and coffee splattered everywhere. But then I noticed that the spill pattern of the coffee perfectly matched the large dark stain already on the carpet. I had not been the first. The mystery was solved. I slept easier that night knowing that no one had been murdered in my room. Instead of Schlotsky's, I ordered a pizza. It was delivered to my door, and that's the first rule of the road. We live and learn. It's a whole different experience when you go on location with your family. There's a whole different set of pressures. How do you take care of the children? What happens if they get sick? What happens if they hate where they are? The list goes on and on and on, and you have to keep a clear head when you're able to work. I was at a party for CBS when Steve Miner, a major bon vivant good guy and absolutely great director, asked me if I wanted to do a movie with Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, I almost dropped my cocktail weenie. Gerard Depardieu had always been one of my favorite actors. Steve saw the glimmer in my eye, and he hit me from all sides. He said, we're going to be doing a remake of the French film, My Father the Hero for Disney. We had this great young actress, Catherine Hegel, for the leading girl. We were shooting in the Bahamas. He said there was a part for my wife, Anne, to play my wife. He said that he would put us up in a suite at Merv Griffin's resort on Paradise Island and that he would even throw in an extra suite for me to bring a nanny to watch my young four-year-old Robert. What other answer was there other than yes? I mean, come on. Every angle was covered. It sounded like every actor's dream come true. What could possibly go wrong? Pause for dramatic effect.
teardrops For one heart to carry on You're way on top now The trip began great. The five-hour flight to Miami came off without a hitch. Our first trial was a three-hour layover in Miami with our almost four-year-old son, Robert. Waiting around was not a strong suit, and it also wasn't the strong suit of the nanny we brought to watch him. She left to buy some gum and a magazine. After waiting for a couple hours and not hearing our flight being called, I started becoming anxious. And then I heard a couple guys sitting near us saying that there was a big tropical storm moving into the area. So, out of my growing concern, I went to check with the desk agent. That's when we hit our first hitch. She told me that our flight was scheduled to leave in an hour, but we weren't going on it because we didn't have seats. I showed her my tickets. She told me that what I had was reservations for the jet, but not seats. I suddenly felt like I had fallen into an episode of Seinfeld. I asked her what she thought a reservation meant if it didn't mean having seats, and she said it meant that we were entitled to get seats. But as it stood, we were out of luck because the flight was full. I asked her when the next flight was. She said it was being delayed by weather, may not leave at all. I walked back to face Anne. As I came into the waiting area, Robert was still screaming his lungs out, crying that he wanted to go home. Shauna, our nanny, was calmly reading a magazine because she wasn't on the clock yet. I told my wife Anne the news that maybe we were stuck here overnight. Anne didn't move. She just stared straight ahead and blinked twice. And then in very Clive Owen fashion, she stood up and said blankly, Give me the baby. Give me the tickets. I passed her the screaming child. She walked up to the ticket counter, plopped Robert in front of the agent and said, I heard you bumped us from our flight. You can watch him until we leave. With that, Anne left. The desk agent found us four seats on the very next flight and we left in an hour. We arrived in the Bahamas in a blinding rainstorm, which wouldn't have mattered except that our luggage handlers left our bags on the runway in the storm. I pointed out that our four bags were still sitting out there, and he told me not to worry. He would get them on his next run. We got to the Merv Griffin Casino Resort Hotel with our soaked clothes and ruined luggage at about 1 a.m. Our son was still screaming. We were told that our room wasn't ready yet because a man had killed himself on our floor and the police had closed off the area. And they were just starting to let housekeeping up there, so if we could just wait a little while longer, our room would be cleaned. He suggested that maybe we grab a little bite at the casino cafe. Shouldn't be too long. There was absolutely nothing edible on the menu that was 1 a.m. appropriate. Clams, onion rings, jerk chicken. I ordered Robert a hot dog and french fries for about $10. Everybody was getting cranky, and you can't blame anyone. It had been a very long day of travel. None of us were used to being up this late, let alone eating this late, so we should not have been surprised when Robert said he had to throw up. But we were. I said, Shauna, which in nanny short speak meant take him away somewhere and let him puke. But she just looked at me with that no way look that only a 20-year-old can muster. I went back to the desk with Robert in my arms and said we had to get upstairs to go to our room. The maid could clean our room tomorrow first thing, but we had to get to sleep. The desk clerk was starting to shake his head no when I pulled an Anne. I set Robert in front of the man and said, this boy is about to vomit. 
I'm going to leave him here until you give me a room key. We got off of our elevator on the ninth floor. Our room was a disaster area. There was a smell of mildew everywhere. Many bar bottles of Johnny Walker were on the bedside table and dresser. There was black mold dripping out of the air conditioner vents, and the sanitized for your protection ring was gone from the toilet. Anne started crying. Robert kept crying. We all crept into one unmade bed where perhaps a dead man had just slept. It was the longest two minutes of my life. That's when I decided to leave Anne and Robert crying in the room and go downstairs to the casino. So here is the story I got. The Merv Griffin Casino Resort Hotel had fallen into bankruptcy six months earlier, which is why the hotel had gotten so nasty and also why the film company got such a great deal putting up the entire production there, with the exception of Gerard and Katie, who stayed in Thailand-like tranquility at the exclusive Ocean Club Hotel down the road. As it turned out, Anne was eight weeks pregnant, so now she was crying for two. We didn't want to tell anyone because we were afraid the producers would say it violated the insurance for the movie and they would fire her. The next day, we started shooting the movie. I had no idea that Paradise Island in the Bahamas was so far from paradise. There were no natural resources, so everything had to be shipped in, which made the price of everything sky high. On the island, there was a lot of unemployment, making armed robbery one of the surest career paths. The AIDS rate was rampant. I mean, it was something like 30%, making health care the largest part of the gross national product. And to cap it all off, the termites were swarming. It was definitely an animal planet moment whenever you walked outside in the dark. Long, flying bugs would land in your ears or try to lay eggs up your nose. And in spite of the nightmarish living conditions, the actual shooting of the movie was going very well, and that's thanks to Gerard and to Catherine and to Steve Miner. I remember we were doing a night shoot at the Ocean Club, pretending we were having a swanky tropical party with occasional bugs flying up our noses. And it was fun to hear Gerard <laughs> swear in French. But there was a grand piano in the scene, and during breaks, I would go up and play. I had learned the Mozart piece that was used in one of Gerard's films, Germinal. And he asked me, what is that song? And I said, hey, it was the song that was used in your last movie. And he laughed and he said, yeah, I thought it sounded familiar. <laughs> After everybody left the set, I started playing Moonlight Sonata just to calm myself down. And I sensed someone behind me. I looked and it was a Bahamian man who had been an extra that night. He was playing a waiter in the background of the scene. And he came around and leaned on the piano with tears in his eyes. And he asked me what the song was. I told him it was the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. He said it was the most beautiful song he had ever heard. He asked me if there was a recording of it. I told him there was. He gave me a piece of paper and asked me to write down the name so he could remember it. He said he was getting married next week and he wanted to have the song played for his wife. She deserves something this beautiful. <clears throat> you know, if Beethoven could magically come back and be able to read all the writings by musicologists, all the reviews of his work ever written by every expert, I would put money down that he would be more moved by this man's wedding plans and his pledge to his bride. 
We shot for a month, and during that time, I was so worried about Anne, I was so worried about Robert, I had not taken any Stephen time to enjoy myself. It had been too hot to go to the beach without risking a stroke. I was too afraid of being raped or robbed to go shopping in town, so I just stayed in the hotel room, or I went to the set, and I worked, and I read books. But one day, I had off. And I decided enough was enough. This was my life. It was my time here on earth. And damn it, I was going to enjoy it. And I exploded out of my hotel room one morning. And the beach was amazingly empty. It was like a dream. I had the entire blue Caribbean all to myself. I put on my mask and flippers. And I dove into that warm, beautiful, clear ocean. And I was at one with the waves. And I started swimming toward the horizon. I made it past the first line of breakers. And as I came up for air, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this man dressed in white on the beach waving at me. And I kept swimming. And I waved back. And he kept waving and yelling something like, come back, come back. And I couldn't quite make out what he was saying, but I just kept swimming. And I yelled back to him when I came up for air, yeah, I'm a swimming. I'm a swimming and I'm a loving it. And as I looked under the water with my mask, I saw with a new clarity that I was in the middle of what looked like a lot of trash. And then flashback. I thought back to the woman years ago in Thailand telling me to be careful not to swim in the ocean because that's where they dumped all the medical waste. What was this? It seemed to be hundreds of clear baggies floating in the water, but they weren't really baggies. They seemed to be moving on their own, and they had tails. Oh, God! Jellyfish! I was in a swarm of jellyfish! I turned around and started swimming for my life. I felt the jellyfish cluster around me and swiping me with their tentacles. I was getting stung on my neck and across my chest. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, get me out of here, get me out of here. I swam until my lungs burst, and I got out of the water, and I headed for the big man dressed in white. I fell down on the beach. I had red whip marks all over my upper body. The man came up to me. He was a big black man whose job usually was putting up deck chairs out by the swimming pool. And he bent down and looked over my, my wounds, and he shook his head and said, Jellyfish, no good. Man, you need to pee on it. I, I said, what? He said, pee on it. You need to pee on it. Get the poison out. The red welts were starting to burn. I was paralyzed by fear, pain, and stupidity all at once. And now I had to find someone to pee on me. At first I thought, if I could get behind the deck chair hut, I could pull my trunks down and try to get an arc of urine going where I could pee on my own chest. And then I noticed hotel guests moving down to the pool area. I would probably get arrested. And then I thought I could run up to the room and get Anne to pee on me. But she was a woman and I needed accuracy. Then I thought I could ask Robert to pee on Daddy. And then I thought about all the psychiatry bills I would have to spring for later in his life. And then I saw the big guy from the hotel who was still out by the pool. Maybe I could just pay him $5 to pee on me. None of these were good ideas, but the poison was starting to build up in my system. I would have to get some urine on my chest soon. I ran up to the hotel room. I could feel tachycardia coming on. I told Ann what had happened and about trying to find someone to pee on me. 
She looked at me with confusion and asked, why? I told her that the man told me it would suck the poison out. She looked at me and asked, why? I said, I don't know. It's folk wisdom. She said it didn't seem like wisdom to her, but that I could use her pee if it would make me feel better. And I told her that wasn't going to work. She wasn't precise enough in her aim. And she looked at me as if I was speaking in some foreign language. And she said, I'm not going to stand up and pee on you. I would pee in a cup. And then I would use a paper towel to daub it anywhere I needed it. And you see, this is why men need women. Women know how to do the most horrible things in a very calm, reasonable way. Anne said that if it were she, she would call the production office and have them send me to a doctor, which is what I did. A cab took me over to the medical clinic, and the movie set doctor checked me out. She gave me some Tylenol and told me to stay out of the sun for the next day, that I should be fine. I asked her if it would help the healing process if I got my wife or son to pee on me. The doctor stopped and stared at me for a long moment and asked, why? And I said, well, I heard that peeing on the sting will take the poison out. And she laughed and said, no, no, that only works for sea urchins. I got back to the room. I sat in the dark and I thought, what a terrible day this had been. And then it hit me. I saw the silver lining. I hadn't paid the big man $5 to pee on me for no reason. That would have made this day so much worse. And that is the first rule of the road. When you're far from home, be grateful for the little things. That was The World Is Not What It Used To Be, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can get in touch with you this week? I would love it if people got in touch with me at stephentobolowsky at gmail.com. Write me with your questions, complaints, and scathing criticisms. <laughs> but you spell that S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O. L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com, or you can get a hold of me at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Excellent. And people, if you want to reach me, you can email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, you'll find me at my other podcast at slashfilmcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Stephen, you got any uh, gigs coming up that people should know about? Well, I... Gigs? Oh, wow. I haven't heard that word in, like, years. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do Glee, I think, next week. Very exciting. And I'm doing a big autograph show. If you're in the uh, Southern California area, it's going to be out of Pasadena, and there are going to be a lot of people there from a lot of different TV shows. On the 20th of March, out in Pasadena at their convention center, I will be out there. I will have... Um, my little photos. I will have Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. I will have some uh, podcast printouts with photos. If anybody wants to come by and say hello, I will be there. Excellent. Well, people can look forward to that. March 20th, where can people find more information on that? Uh, I guess if you go online, and it's called Autograph Nationals, uh -huh. and just uh, 
put it in your Google box and you'll see it, the entire list of people who will be there. You know, a lot of people from Star Trek, a lot of people from television. It should be a very fun event. Very cool. Well, uh, people can meet Stephen in person there and tell him how much you love the Tobolowsky Files. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, guys. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowsky Files. Thank you guys for tuning in and have a great week. Adios. <laughs>